The notion of the gradation of things is of no small importance for understanding the way things are. As Aquinas puts it, and I quote, God produces things for the sake of communicating his goodness to creatures and through them to represent his goodness. And because it cannot be adequately represented through one creature, he produces many and diverse creatures so that what is lacking to one for the purpose of representing divine goodness is filled up by others. For the goodness which exists simply and uniformly in God in creatures is multiple and divided, whence the whole universe more perfectly shares in and represents divine goodness than any other creature whatsoever." End quote. Now, in the sentences, Aquinas asked whether God could make a better universe than the current universe. He raises an objection in favor of an affirmative response, and I quote, if a better thing is added to a better thing, the whole would be better. But an angel is better than a rock. Therefore, two angels would be better than an angel and a rock. <laughs> Therefore, if every part of the universe were an angel, the universe would be much better, end quote. Aquinas says in response that, quote, although an angel is absolutely better than a rock, nevertheless, both natures are better than one. And therefore, it is a better universe in which there are angels and other things than one where there would only be angels. For the perfection of the universe is gauged essentially according to the diversity of natures by which diverse grades of goodness are filled up and not according to the multiplication of individuals belonging to one nature." End quote. Think of it this way. Although a rock is vastly inferior to an angel, a universe in which there's Yosemite's half dome, in addition to angels, is better than one without it. Half Dome's quantitative massiveness represents God's majesty in a way that an angel cannot. The importance of understanding the gradations in things is also apparent when we think of the fourth way, which I guess we learn about junior year. In the words of Aquinas, quote, the fourth way is taken from grades which are found in things. For they're found in things some things that are more and less good, true, and noble, and so forth. But more and less are said about diverse things according as they draw nearer in diverse ways to something which is the greatest, as what is hotter is what draws nearer to what is maximally hot." End quote. If Aquinas is right here, it's important to defend the grades in things because they provide a way to reason to the existence of God. The purpose of my talk is not to expound the fourth way, nor is it to defend Aquinas's view on the reason for the diverse grades of things but rather is defend the notion that there are diverse grades. I'm not gonna treat non-living natural things, but will limit myself to material living things. I note that when it comes to non-living natural things, science knocked out one of the grades that Aquinas thought existed, namely the heavenly bodies, which Aquinas thought were made of a matter that could not corrupt, but only change place. Scientists also challenged the gradations of things that Aquinas thought were present in the realm of material living things, namely plants, animals, and humans. Before looking at these three grades themselves, I need to respond to a view that is put forth by a good number of biologists, namely that one cannot call one kind of living thing superior to another, in which case there could be no grades in the real living realm. The reason they hold that no species of living thing is superior to another is because all organisms that have survived are successfully adapted to their environments. So an orangutan is not superior to the earthworm because both species are successfully adapted to their environments. 
I once heard directly out of the mouth of an expert on mosses that the loss of the, of the human species or the loss of a moss species would be equally sad. He really thought that the human species was no better than a moss species. Aristotle defends the notion that there are different grades of life which represent a hierarchy of perfection by distinguish, distinguishing two meanings of the word perfection. In one sense, one being can be more perfect than another insofar as it has more being. In another sense, a being is either perfect or imperfect insofar as it has or lacks the parts it's supposed to have to carry on its life. Looking to perfection in the second sense, Aristotle argues that shellfish are not imperfect in the sense of missing something, despite their inability to move about like many other animals, for they reproduce individuals like themselves. The type of perfection and imperfection in question here corresponds to the biologist's notions of fitness and the lack thereof. Later on, however, Aristotle speaks of certain animals as being imperfect in another sense namely because they lack senses that other animals have. A sense allows a being in some manner to be more than just itself. As Aristotle puts it, the soul is in a certain way all things. This is readily seen in the case of seeing something and later imagining it. One could not later imagine it if it had not initially in some way come to exist inside one. It has become part of one in some sense. Sense knowledge then extends one's being granted not one substantial being. A plant is limited to being a plant, whereas an animal seeing a plant becomes that plant by way of the likeness that comes to be within it. Animals then, in virtue of possessing sense perception, have more being than plants do, and in this way are more perfect than they are. So Aquinas puts it in slightly different words um, in the Summa, it's the same point though. He says, in those things lacking knowledge, there is found a form only determining the proper being of each thing to one, which is the nature of each. In things having knowledge, however, each thing is thus determined to its proper natural being through a natural form, which nevertheless is receptive of the forms of other things." End quote. So animals that have more senses are more perfect than those who have fewer senses in the sense that they have more being. Later, I will address the claim that some biologists make concerning plants, namely that there's no essential difference between them and animals. What I want to establish here is that while it's true that all species have to have the perfection of the necessary parts and abilities needed to survive, that is not a reason to deny that some beings are more perfect than others in the sense that they have more being. The criteria of fitness does not eliminate the possibility of gradations in things. The grades of living things that Aquinas proposes is ultimately based on his division of souls. Living things differ from non-living ones in, in that they move on their own. Their capacity for self-motion, however, is ultimately rooted in their formal principle, their soul. Thus, Aquinas establishes the grades of life by considering the actions proceeding from the soul, and I quote, it is necessary, however, to consider three grades in the actions of the soul. For the action of the soul transcends the action of nature working in inanimate things. And this happens as to two things, namely as to the manner of acting and as to what is done." End quote. As to the manner of acting, all living things differ from non-living ones in being self-movers. However, some living things, namely plants, do not do anything that transcends what non-living natural things do. 
Non-living things come into existence, achieve a certain size, and stay in existence. Plants also do these things. It's only how they do them that differs, for plants grow, nourish themselves, and reproduce by moving themselves. Animals and humans, in addition to being self-movers, do things that transcend what natural things do, namely they sense and understand. To quote Aquinas, for there is one grade of immaterial being according as things are in the soul without their own matter, but nevertheless according to their singularity and individual conditions which are consequent upon matter. And this grade is sense, which is receptive of the forms of individual things without matter, but nevertheless in a bodily organ. However, the higher and more perfect grade of immateriality is the intellect, which receives forms without any matter at all and abstract from the conditions of matter and does so without a bodily organ, end quote. Now, a lot more could be said about the very precise treatment Aquinas gives here of the gradations in the living realm. However, the broad brush picture suffices for our purpose. Aquinas is saying that plants only differ from non-living natural things by moving on their own, as when they grow, while animals and humans further differ in what they do, namely, they know either by sensing or by understanding. The grades of life are thus threefold. I'm going to begin by defending the grade of life human. Many scientists, including Darwin, regard humans as simply one animal alongside others, rather than as constituting a separate grade of life. The question boils down to whether there is a difference between sensing and thinking rationally, or whether rational thought is simply a form of sensing. How exactly does intellectual knowledge differ from sense knowledge? The intellect is capable of grasping universal truths such as physical and chemical laws, various philosophical truths, and very simple truths, basic principles such as the whole is greater than the part, and equals added to equals give equals. In order to understand these truths, we must first form the individual concepts involved, for example, whole, part, greater. A number of thinkers maintain that there's no difference between a concept or abstract thought and a sense perception. However, the senses only know particular things. I see and smell this rose, not rose in general. Imagination is a type of sensibility as it too apprehends what is particular. I imagine a specific rose, not rose in general. The intellect forms the universal concept rose, which it understands to belong to every particular rose that is, was, and ever will be. Now, many thinkers confuse intellect with the imagination. But it's not hard to see that image and an idea or thought are not the same thing. So right now, everyone think of a dog. If you thought of a dog, you actually did two things. You pictured a particular dog, and you brought to mind the concept dog. And it's obvious that these two things differ. For example, when asked to think of a dog, you'll imagine a dog of a certain size. For example, a large dog, like a German Shepherd. Yet, upon being asked whether a small dog, such as a chihuahua, is a dog, you'll reply yes. If your concept of dog was the same as the image you initially formed, you could not know that a small dog was a dog. Any dog you imagine has to be an individual of a specific kind, a German Shepherd, a chihuahua, a mutt of some sort. The concept dog, however, cannot be identical to any individual because then it wouldn't apply to every individual sharing the canine nature. This difference between universal and particular is reflected in the way we speak. 
We can't say that this dog is that dog, but we can say of every particular dog that it is a dog. The concept dog abstracts from the features that make a particular dog the particular dog that it is. A corollary of this is that concepts are not physical things. All physical things have some quantitative dimension. So go back to the example, think of a dog. The dog you imagine has a size in your imagination. You can imagine a bigger or smaller dog next to the dog you initially imagined. Now, in reality, a dog that's three feet high is taller than one that's one foot high. And the image of a three foot high dog is greater in height than the image of a dog that's one foot high. But the concept three feet is not a bigger concept than the concept one foot. It's a concept of a bigger length, but it itself has no size. If the concept had a specific size, it would be an image, image of sorts and would not be applicable to everything that has a dimension of three feet. If we form and consider ideas with our intellect, the intellect cannot be an ability belonging to merely a merely physical thing. Physical things can act upon other physical things, either importing, imparting new accidents to them, such as warmth or a new location, or causing them to be transformed into another substance, as when a spark causes oxygen and hydrogen to form water. But physical things can't act on another physical thing and thereby turn it into a non-physical thing. There's always some underlying matter involved in physical changes that persist throughout the change. So neither the brain nor any body part can produce an idea, and this shows that the intellect must be immaterial. A complementary argument for the immateriality of the intellect stems from considering the way in which less general concepts fall under a more general concept. In the Platonic dialogue, Parmenides, I don't know if you still read the Parmenides, but I remember the, this from my TAC days. In the Platonic dialogue, Parmenides, it suggested that the more general concept is like a tent that covers a number of different things. Okay, so for example, the concept animal, okay, you have your tent, would cover the concepts of dog and pig and frog. The problem with this view, however, is that only part of the tent covers each thing under the tent. Yet the whole concept animal applies to the concepts of dog and pig and frog. Everything that's true of animal is true of dog. Everything that's true of animal is true of pig, and not just part of what is true of animal. So the extension the concept animal has cannot be some type of physical extension, in which case the intellect that forms the concept also cannot be a physical thing. If we take into account that research indicates that some animals do not show the least sign that they're capable of abstract thought, animals like nematode worms and slugs, we can conclude that they're two grades of living things, one grade capable of sensory knowledge alone and another capable of intellectual knowledge as well. Within the category of animal, there will be grades based on the perfection of animal sensorial abilities, and I won't attempt here to outline those grades. It's obvious that a dog is superior to a slug and to an earthworm. Higher animals have a greater capacity for learning. And also here we have to look at the internal senses, not just the external senses. All right, well what about within the category of rational animal? Are there grades within that category? A certain number of people would say there are. According to an article in the Scientific American, quote, there can be little doubt that civilizations more advanced than the Earth exist elsewhere in the universe, end quote. 
In fact, however, we do not know that such beings exist. Now, others would have us rank the great apes with humans. These people claim that human rights should be extended to great apes. And indeed, in 1999, New Zealand extended personhood rights to great apes. And in 2008, Spain did so as well. I think the best way to see that other animals do not fall in the category of rational animal is by what I call the question test. If a being is rational, it will ask questions seeking knowledge for its own sake because rational beings naturally desire to perfect their intellect, which they do by acquiring knowledge. An animal species, none of whose members ask questions seeking knowledge for its own sake, could not be rational. Now, they, they've tried to teach animals to talk in various ways, okay? So first they actually taught them, were trying to teach them to, to speak, and that didn't work very well for two reasons. One, they don't have the right vocal apparatus, and the other is they get like really excited whenever they vocalize, you know, like, <laughs> like that, you know? So, <laughs> so what, they, what they decided to do then is they, they taught them sign language, okay? So that worked a lot better, but the thing is is that sign language is subject to interpretation, so, you know, if the ape does this, did it really say love me, or was it, you know, doing something else? So what they, what they then turned to were what they generally call lexigrams. So the lexigrams, they can come in different forms, but like one way they would have the lexigrams, they just take like a, a sheet of cardboard, and the, and the sheet of cardboard, you'd put different squares. Each square would have a symbol, like the first square would have a star. So that way the ape could just point, okay? It could point to the star and that would mean banana or point to the treble clef and that would mean, I don't know, tickle. They like to be tickled. They love tickling. Um, so at any rate, that was, that, and, and they can also put the, the lexigrams on, on, and they did this on laptops. So the, the lexigram would on, be on the key, but then it would light up on the screen so that the ape could make little sentences like give me banana, okay? So, what one sees if one looks at transcripts of great eight utterances is that they never ask questions for the purpose of gaining ideas about the world. Again, if they had the, the ability to form concepts about the world, they would naturally desire to actualize this ability. And once they had the words needed to ask questions about the world, they would naturally ask questions about it. We see this in human children. According to an article based on a survey of a thousand mothers, that was done by an online retail store. So it wasn't a, a scientific study, all right? But still, a thousand mothers, okay? <laughs> mothers are asked nearly 300 questions a day. Now, <laughs> this number may be way too high, but little kids certainly do ask a lot of questions, okay? The five toughest questions mothers get asked are, why is water wet? Where does the sky end? What are shadows made out of? Why is the sky blue? And how do fish breathe underwater? <laughs> so what this shows is that while certainly children ask questions to get things like cookies, they also ask many questions simply to increase their intellectual knowledge of the world. Apes, on the other hand, only ask questions to get things. Um, they use language for the most part in a way similar to the pigeon that's been, that's learned to push buttons in a certain sequence to get a grain reward. So the, you, you can have these colored buttons like red, yellow, green, okay? 
And the, the pigeon learns through trial and error what color sequence you have to push, and then, then it gets a grain reward. Okay. So, and, and the interesting, about, interesting thing about the buttons is you can move them around. And the, the, the pigeons are smart. They, they remember the sequence. They'll pack out the right sequence, even though the buttons are in different places. Now, imagine that you put on those three buttons, give pigeon grain. Would you now say, whoa, look, pigeon has language. <laughs> so, I mean, the pigeon's using associative memory, and that's basically what's going on with, with the apes, okay? Now, there are some cases where an animal asks for the name of something. For example, the parrot Alex asked a student who is eating a carrot what it was called and what color it was. Alex was later able to identify orange-colored things, and he sometimes asked for carrots. Obviously, knowing the word for carrot was, for Alex, a means of getting carrots. As for learning the word for the color orange, Alex was often asked what color various objects were and would be rewarded for a correct answer. So it's not surprising that Alex would ask this question and store the answer away for future use. Alex's question concerned a name for something, not the reality itself. By contrast, a child might be in her parents' lab and ask, what's that? And the parent might say, that's a centrifuge. But the child might then go on to ask, what is a centrifuge? Okay? Children are not just interested in knowing names, but in understanding what things are. While some animals will ask for a name, in the case of names that are useful for getting things they want, they don't ask about things. In striking contrast, the blind and deaf Cullen Keller, upon being taught sign language, eventually came to ask questions about things and not just about the names of things. Right, at first she was asking for names of different things, right? Okay. But here's a quote from her autobiography. I had now the key to old language and I was eager to learn to use it. Children who hear acquire language without any particular effort. The words that fall from others' lips they catch on the wing as it were delightedly while well, the little deaf child must trap them by a slow and often painful process. At first, when my teacher told me about a new thing, I asked very few questions. My ideas were vague, and my vocabulary was inadequate, but as my knowledge of things grew, and I learned more and more words, my field of inquiry broadened, and I would return again and again to the same subject, eager for further information." End quote. The apes that were subjects in the language studies had normal vision and hearing and could see and hear all sorts of the things that are apt to provoke wonder in children, water, shadows, the sky, and so forth. And yet none of them asked a single question seeking knowledge for its own sake. Language unlocked Helen's mind. She had ideas but could not express them, nor did she have a way of seeking new ideas from others. By contrast, what language training did for the apes was give them a new way of requesting things. Note that at least some researchers were aware of what I call the question test and regarded it as a valid test for rationality. For example, ape researcher Herbert Harris questioned David Premack's claims about the linguistic competence of the chimpanzee Sarah on the grounds that the chimp did not ask questions. Premack recognized the legitimacy of this criticism and tried to blame Sarah's failure to ask questions on the training program, claiming that it gave the chimp no opportunity to ask questions. 
Now, this ran up against the fact that Sarah was sometimes naughty, and she would sometimes grab all the tokens and run off with them to a quarter. Okay, so that this was her big chance to ask a question. What does she do? She makes the same sentences that she was trained to make. All right. Okay, so you could be sure, th these were renowned researchers, you know, you could be sure that if some ape was asking questions, seeking knowledge for its own sake, this would be in the news, okay? But it's just not there. Um, in the Q&A, I can respond to some of the arguments typically given by those who maintain that some non-human animals are capable of abstract thought. But my point here is I think that the question test is a solid te test for rationality. If you have concepts, you, you, you realize in some confused way that they perfect your mind. We all feel awkward, right, when someone says, oh, you didn't know that, right? <laughs> you know, it's not a good feeling. So I think this is a, a, a solid test. Okay, so now I'm gonna turn to defending the great plant. Note until recently it wasn't something that appeared to be necessary. Now, people sometimes think that the obvious difference between plants and animals is that plants are rooted in one place. However, there are animals that are fixed in one place, at least in their adult form, such as coral, oysters, and barnacles. From the point of view of the grades of being, the more essential difference is that between an organism that possesses sensation and one that lacks it. Nowadays, some scientists maintain that all plants sense, and not just certain plants, like Venus flytraps, in which case they would all be animals, and the grade plant would not exist. Plants manifest the life activities of nutrition, growth, and reproduction. Let us start from what we know about these activities in ourselves. We know that food nourishes us and that we grow or have grown. We have no consciousness of these activities, which indicate that they do not involve sense perception. We know that we grow not because we sense ourselves growing, nor because we, underlie the, we sense the underlying processes which result in growth. We know that we grow because of comparisons we make. Think of the child bragging, I'm now, I'm now taller than mom, or my pants don't fit anymore. Um, similarly, while we're aware of how food tastes and feels, we're not aware of what goes on in nutrition once we swallow the food. We are aware of feeling weak if we don't eat, and sometimes of our belly bloating, and we know that excretion in some way depends on eating, and there are other clues as well. But exactly what goes on in nutrition does so without us sensing it, and this is also the case for the production of sperm and the maturation and release of eggs. So footnote, apparently some women can detect when they're releasing eggs. All right. Um, these activities, however, would not go on any better for us being aware of them. Indeed, being aware of them would be distracting. It would seem then that since nutrition, growth, and the production of germ cells goes on and on and on, on in us, Without sensation, there is no need for sensation in order for other organisms to perform these activities. From the point of view of finality, there's reason to think that other organisms are not going to be endowed with sense perception to execute these same fundamental activities, for that would be superfluous. The reasoning above, however, seems to overlook a pertinent fact about plant growth. It's not plants' growth per se that has motivated some scientists to assert that plants are sentient. It is the fact that their growth is directional and variable. Compare the growth of an animal with bilateral symmetry, such as a dog, with the growth of a tree. So if the development of a dog takes place properly, you will have a dog with one torso, one head, 
and four legs, more or less the same size, attached at precise points on the torso. A, given, a tree of a given species, on the other hand, does not have a determinate number of branches. And where the branches are placed on different individual trees varies, as does their size and orientation. The number, size, and orientation of the branches is not predetermined by internal factors, as is the case with the number and arrangement of the dog's parts, but depends in large part on the light that is available. Indeed, trees have the challenge of growing their branches in such a manner so as not to obstruct light from their other branches. It seems then that trees and other plants need to know where the light is so that their branches and or leaves grow in the manner most apt to sustain their lives. And the same seems to be true with root growth towards water. The plants seem to have to know which way their roots should grow. Before I go on to respond to the question raised by the directional character of plant growth, I would like to first address another activity of plants that might seem to require sensation. Do plants need to sense in order to adapt? According to a biologist, Nikonur Ostriaco, the answer is yes, and I quote, Modern biologists would challenge this account, that is, that there's a nutritive soul that is other than the sensitive soul, because all living things have to respond and to adapt to their environments to survive, and they do this by sensing different external cues. Thus, all living things must have sensitive souls, end quote. Many adaptations, however, take place without sensation. For example, acclimatization to both altitude and temperature. What happens in the case of acclimatization to altitude is that the body needs a certain amount of oxygen to carry on vital processes, but the lower pressure of higher altitudes makes it more difficult for oxygen to enter our vascular systems. Adaptation consists in changes in the body that help overcome this difficulty. What are these changes? I quote, when we travel to high mountain areas, our bodies initially develop inefficient physiological responses. There is an increase in breathing and heart rate to as much as double. Later, a more efficient response normally develops as acclimatization takes place. Additional red blood cells and capillaries are produced to carry more oxygen. The lungs increase in size to facilitate the osmosis of oxygen and carbon dioxide. There's also an increase in the vascular network of muscles, which enhances the transfer of gases, end quote. The changes producing acclimatization are not triggered by sense perception of the lower air pressure. It's the lower air pressure itself that triggers them, and they go on without us sensing them. So even if you were unconscious, you would, your body would acclimatize. There's absolutely no need for sensation. So it's not true that adaptation always requires sensation. Even machines are capable of changing behavior in response to environmental changes so as to function better. For example, probably don't know this, but you can actually train Siri to more accurately convert one's voice to text. Thus, observation of altered responses independent of other knowledge of the being in question does not even allow one to conclude that the being is alive, much less sentient. Plants are able to adapt to many stressful conditions. However, research on how they do so does not propose accounts that involve sensing, but rather biochemistry. So I'm going to spare you this really long paragraph about how plants acclimatize to cold, 
I'll just like throw out a few of the terms in it, um, like mitogen activated protein kinase cascade, polyamines, proline. Yeah, you've had enough? Yeah, okay, you get the picture. <laughs> okay, glad I, did, I skipped the other four lines. Um, it's, it's clear from what has been said above, though, about acclimatization, that the view that the ability to adapt necessarily depends upon sensation is incorrect. All right, so how does one judge that a living thing other than human senses? Certainly, observing its behavior is a key element. Behavior is not the sense perception, but certain behaviors would be inexplicable in the absence of sense perception. Some behaviors are directly connected to sensing, looking, listening, sniffing. These behaviors are voluntary attempts to sense something or to continue to sense something. Then there are behaviors other than those of directing the senses that could not be accomplished in the absence of sensation. One example is an earthworm holding something in the right orientation to get it into its hole. As Darwin observes, and I quote, if worms are able to judge, having drawn an object close to the mouth of their burrows, how best to drag it in, they must acquire some notion of its general shape." End quote. Plainly, in observing the, the or, plainly, in observing the organism's behavior, one needs to determine what is provoking or stimulating the behavior. Is it the visible, the audible, and so forth? Bats catch insects, but not because the insects are visible. One needs to narrow down what the organism is responding to by observing it in situations where other things it could be responding to are eliminated. The presence of an organ similar to our sense organs is often also helpful for determining that an organism senses. And even if the organ is not like ours, we sometimes manage to recognize it on the basis of studies we do that allow us to connect a specific structure that we observe with the responses of the organism as is the case, for example, of the lateral line found in fish by which they detect movements and pressure changes in the surrounding water, and the ampullae of Lorenzini, which sharks and certain other animals use to de detect electricity. Sometimes we posit the presence of an organ on the basis of what we suspect is a sentient response on the part of an organism. For example, our discovery that migratory birds orient themselves towards magnetic north preceded investigation into the organ by which this was accomplished. Every case of sensing requires a sense organ. With these criteria in mind, let us now consider plants in more detail. At the basis of claims that plants are sentient, are there various responses of things outside them, especially when those responses are directional, as is the case of growth towards light or towards water? To evaluate, to evaluate the view that directional growth requires sensing on the part of plants, let's consider whether plants that grow towards light have an organ for sensing light. Ostriaco argues, and I quote, the tip of the coleoptal is the part of the young growing plant that allows the plant to sense and to respond to light, specifically blue light, by growing in the direction of the light. If you cut off the tip, then the plant will ignore the blue light and continue to grow straight up. In the same way, I can destroy the few light-sensing cells in a worm, and when I do this, the worm will ignore the light. If you know that you're disrupting sensing in the worm because now it responds differently to light by removing the light-sensing organ, then you have to say you're also disrupting sensing in the plant because it now responds differently to light after you disrupt its sense organ." End quote. However, 
2013 article entitled Phototropism, Translating Light into Directional Growth, explains what occurs in purely photobiochemical terms. The blue light receptors in the coleoptal tip, called phototropins, consist of a protein with two chromophores embedded in it. Chromophores absorb photons, and this changes their structure, which change has an effect on the protein in which they're embedded, which in turn triggers chemical changes leading to the oxygen, oxygen gradient, which, is, which causes asymmetric growth. Oxygen's are growth hormones. So basically, again, this is one place where maybe I should have had a handout. So, so, you, so you, have, um, you have these phototropins, which are basically a protein with two chromophores in it, okay? And so if a blue photon hits one of those chromophores, they change shape, and then they cause the protein that they're embedded in to change shape, and then this causes other biochemical signals which, which ultimately result in the, the transport of oxen to the dark side of the cell, I mean, to, excuse me, to the dark side of the stem, so the dark side is going to grow more than the, the side where there's the light, and so of course the plant then turns towards light. Okay, so the point is, it's not the plant seeing blue, but rather the absorption of a photon and the subsequent changes that this causes that leads to growth. Plainly, if one re removes any part of the chain that leads ultimately to growth, growth will not occur. But this has no bearing on whether sensing light has taken place. Some reason has to be given for why sensing blue must be added to the chain of physical causes that are proposed as an explanation for differential growth. From the point of view of finality, the plant isn't going to react any better for seeing the light any more than we would digest our food better if this was a sense process. The 2011 discovery that melanocytes so melanocytes are the skin cells that produce melanin, so when you tan, that's why you get dark, because melanin is being produced by melanocytes. Okay. So the 2011 discovery that melanocytes contain rhodopsin, a light receptor found in the eye, puts in sharp relief the gratuitousness of attributing sight to plants. Activation of this receptor unleashes calcium ion signals that instigate melanin production. Plainly, we do not see with our skin. Similarly, the activation of the plant's light receptors causes a series of biochemical reactions resulting in a teleological response. There is no reason to say that the plant sees any more than there is to say that we see with our melanocytes. The same type of explanation that's given for plants' growth towards blue light is proposed in other cases of their directional, directional growth. For example, plants need to detect where water is in order to send out roots. We don't know entirely how roots grow towards water, but the type of explanation that's advanced by scientists is along the lines of moisture triggering a physical or chemical change that in turn sets in motion a signaling cascade leading to cell elongation. There's no evidence that plants need to sense wetness. Sometimes it's suggested that one can distinguish plants from animals because Plants, unlike animals, respond in a uniform way to stimuli coming from without. This was actually suggested the last time I was giving a talk on plants at TAC West. Okay? So people thought that you could distinguish plants from animals because plants are always going to respond the same way. Well, factually, plants do sometimes alter their responses. A number of experiments have been done that indicate that plants can be habituated. 
So one was done in 1965 with mimosas. So I don't know if you've ever seen mimosas. They're really, really cool, okay? But if you touch them, they're called the sensitive plant also. If you touch them, they'll fold their leaves together, okay? And so what they do with the mimosas is they drip water on them, okay? So they're dripping the water in the mimosa. Poor mimosa, it closes up, okay? It opens slowly, drip, drip, closes, opens, drip, drip. And then it, stop, it, stops, it stops closing, okay? And you might say, well, it's gotten tired, you know? It doesn't have, enough, <laughs> doesn't have energy to close anymore. But the thing is, if you would touch it, it would close, okay? And then um, another study was done in 2014, and what they did is they dropped the mimosas, okay? So they dropped them four to six inches, okay? So the mimosa went, you know, close, open, close, okay? So you get it, so eventually, eventually it just stopped closing. And again, it wasn't because it was tired, because if you'd shake it, it would close, okay? Um, so you might go from there to conclude that they're animals. As habituation is typically understood to be the most rudimentary form of learning. However, it would be hasty to draw that conclusion. That is because certain machines can act in a manner that fits the description of habituation as well. That is, when an input is repeated a certain number of times, they cease responding to it. For example, there are computers that are programmed to autocorrect words that they perceive as being misspelled. However, some have a feature such that when one deletes what they've autocorrected twice, they now count the word one types in as part of the dictionary, and they no longer respond by correcting it. It's as if they've got used to that word. And of course, computers are not sentient. Also, there are robots that have been programmed to habituate. They cease responding to a thing they repeatedly encounter and turn to novel things. Thus, one cannot assume that a decreased response to a repeated stimulus by a plant shows the plant's senses. From the point of view of finality, a reaction triggered by a stimulus that's biologically unimportant is a waste of energy, regardless of whether the reaction is to something sensed or something merely detected, as light is by the plant. Thus, from this point of view, it's not surprising that something resembling habituation in animals would arise in non-sentient living things. What about grades within the category plant? Categories that have been used in biology in the past are lower plants and higher plants. Before I consider whether this, this distinction really denotes grades in being, let me note the reaction of a contemporary author to this division, and I quote, this term higher plants together with the term higher animals is just a remnant of a completely wrong concept that has or shouldn't have any place in the world after 1859. The great chain of being, or scala natura in Latin. Think of it as a meaningless term, just like more evolved organism, end quote. It does seem that plants can only be compared as to their fitness, their ability to survive and reproduce. For if individuals of a species cannot do those things, they die and the species goes extinct. This again is the rationale for saying no species is better than any other species. I thought for a while if there was some way of conceding this point while continuing to speak of lower and higher plants, and I'm not sure you, one can. Lower and higher plants are most often said to correspond to non-vascular and vascular plants, which differ mainly in that vascular plants contain a specialized xylem and phloem tissue for the transportation of water and foods, while non-vascular plants do not contain specialized vas vascular tissues for transport, 
So you probably know that virtually every plant you see around you is a vascular plant, and it has kind of tubes for food and water inside it. Okay? Not the most common non-vascular plant that you would see would be a moss. So, all right. So do plants in one category do better than those in another when it comes to nutrition, growth, and reproduction? In general, having vascular tissue facilitates nutrition and growth. Non-vascular plants are small in size due to the poor transport of water and gases. I thought for a moment that kelp, which are classified as non-vascular plants, as they have no root, might be an exception. Kelp can get extremely large, up to 200 feet long. However, upon further research, it turns out that kelp do not, or excuse me, that kelp do have vascular tissue for food transport. The case of kelp, then, does not show that some non-vascular plants can be superior to vascular plants. Indeed, the convergent evolution of vascular tissue gives us another reason to think that vascular plants have a superior design. The problem, though, with drawing this conclusion is that what is superior in one environment may prove to be inferior in another. Given the environments that have existed on the Earth since plant life began, it seems safe to say that overall, vascular plants are more lively. They're bigger, they live longer, and there are more species of them. So there are 300,000 species of vascular plants and only about 30,000 species of non-vascular plants. Still, perhaps under other climatic conditions, non-vascular plants would reign supreme. I don't know enough about plants to make that call. Think about the dinosaurs. Who would have ever believed that these creatures that reigned supreme for millions of years would go extinct? There are also some unusual things that some plants do that might incline us to see them as higher than others. There's the relatively rapid movement of the Venus flytrap in the, in the mimosa. Then there are also plants that are capable of leaf mimicry. A plant called Bochilla can, can grow its leaves so they mimic the leaves of other plants. Some should suggest that Bochilla sees, okay, so it's looking at the plant to the right and the plant to the left, and <laughs> then it starts growing its leaves to look like that, okay? I don't think that's the case. But it does seem to put them closer to animals. Think of animals that, like chameleons that change color to blend in with their surroundings. Do these plants represent grades within the category plant? I don't know. Then there's the whole can of worms that I've yet to mention. You're probably thinking about it. Microscopic organisms. Oh, my. Some bacteria, such as E. coli, are non-sentient and therefore are plants. Bacteria have been wildly successful throughout evolutionary history, and even though they're small and short-lived, their ability to reproduce far exceeds that of plants, vascular or non-vascular. It's estimated that the total number of bacteria in the 70-kilogram reference man is 3.8 times 10 to the 13th. So I don't even know what 10 to the 13th is, but it's more than billions. It's more than billions, all right? <laughs> All right. It is clear that we meet increasing difficulty the further we try to go in determining in detail the gradations of things. And even in the case of the broadest categories, it's not always easy to determine in which a given organism falls. Aristotle notes this in a number of places, and so I'll quote the part of animals. The sea squirts differ very little in their nature from plants but they're more akin to animals than sponges are, which are completely plants. Nature passes in a continuous gradation from lifeless things to animals, and on the way are living things which are not actually animals, 
with the result that one class is so close to the next that the difference seems infinitesimal, end quote. And Aquinas agrees with Aristotle's observation that the gradations from one being to the next may be very slight. And moreover, he sees this as pertaining to the universe's perfection. And I quote, to the end that the universe be perfect, no grade of perfection is skipped in things, but nature proceeds little by little from imperfect to perfect, end quote. I've often pondered the differences between plants and animals and people, and have often agonized over trying to determine whether certain organisms are plants or animals. But before writing this talk, I never thought about these differences in the context of the totality of gradations of being. And doing so evoked in me a sense of wonder and the sense of admiration, and even in the sense of awe. I have focused here on the living beings and material creation, but I would like to close with a text that speaks about immaterial creation. The passage is from the Summa Contra Gentilis, and the context is that Aquinas has shown that the immaterial human soul is a substantial form of the body, but can exist apart from the body." Unquote. In this way, however, the wonderful connection of things can be considered. For it is always found that the lowest of the higher genus touches the highest of the lower genus, as there are certain lowest beings in the genus of animal that barely exceed the life of plants such as oysters, which are immobile and only have the sense of touch and are bound to the earth in the manner of plants. Whence, as blessed Dionysius says, divine wisdom joins the limits of the higher with the front ranks of the lower. We are then to acknowledge that something that is highest in the genus of bodies, namely the human body with its balanced makeup, attains to something that is lowest in the higher genus, namely to the human soul, which holds the lowest grade in the genus of intellectual substances, which can be perceived from its mode of knowing. And whence it is that the intellectual soul is said to be, as it were, a certain horizon and common boundary of the corporeal and incorporeal, insofar as it's an incorporeal substance that is nevertheless the form of the body." End quote. Praise be to God, who pours wisdom over all his works. Thank you.